The Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your buggy hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm one of your other hosts, Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I hope you're not covered in bugs, John. I'm your other host, Michael Scavarla from Penn State University. I thought you would say might, maybe, like you're the mighty Mike, mighty host. Oh, yeah. I see where you're going with that. Yeah, no, I mean, that was just my hope and dream, and you crushed it. It's fine. So welcome to the show. Apparently, we're we're a discombobulated mess. We are excited that you've chosen to join us here today. How are you two doing? How's life? Yeah. It's August already. That's kind of unbelievable. It's been an okay summer. Yeah. Uh, Still getting slammed by ID requests. Not a whole lot that's like real interesting in them. Just kind of the same old, same old. Not so many murder hornets anymore, so that's been nice. That is nice. I I did a while ago. I don't know what ever happened to it. I did an interview about the murder hornet mayhem paper that I put out a little bit Mm -hmm. ago uh, by the New York Times. Oh. They're going to run like a, here's the real story and what happened, and it's going to appear also in the New York Times, so that's nice. Did you take them to task? I didn't take them to task, but I may have said some things <laughs> why don't you t- why don't you tell the listeners about the new name though oh uh, yeah the formerly asian giant hornets are now northern giant hornets per the esa common names committee yep it seems like they took that one in they decided to make some changes and they've come up with northern giant hornet we were all informed through email recently right i think yeah or twitter yeah. i forget how i learned you get everything through Twitter. So maybe that was how you heard about it. But yeah, it's, so if you're writing anything up about it or if you're going to do any media about it, you're an entomologist, make sure that you use that new common name uh, and maybe put a caveat in there about also known as the Asian giant hornet, also known as the murder hornet, also known as the thing that took over Mike's life for a couple of years. <laughs> I was really hoping they were going to go with Sparrow Wasp. I really, yeah. I really liked that name. Yeah, but we're not, we're not in charge. We're not in charge. I guess that means I need to volunteer for more stuff because <laughs> I have all I have all the time to do that in the world. <laughs> I can give some updates about Kentucky. It's been hot and dry here. It's been kind of a weird summer. Uh, it was hot and dry, I should say, for most of the summer. But we recently have had uh, a bout of extreme weather. And if you've heard about Kentucky in the news, you may have heard that President Biden was here recently touring the state because we had a round of pretty bad flooding in the southeastern portion of the state. Uh, there were several counties affected, Breathitt, Clay, Knott, Letcher, and Perry counties. Uh, I know some extension agents from all those counties. Uh, we have some research facilities that are down there, and they've all been heavily impacted. Uh, one of our research centers that's in that area is basically ruined. Uh, a lot of data got lost. Uh, things got washed away. Even some stuff that I was uh, supposed to be working on, some sticky cards from a, a test plot down there have uh, been floated away. Uh, more importantly, I would say that there's been a lot of Kentuckians that have been really impacted. There have been, I think the last time I looked 37 deaths, uh, which has included some children and it's just a really tough time. That area of the state is kind of prone to this. There's a lot of haulers. And when the rain comes down in these torrents, 
uh, has nowhere to go, but get kind of funneled down into these areas. I think at one point they were saying the rain was coming down at four to five inches an hour. Uh, and this was over the course of two days or so, two or three days. So the video and the pictures are pretty devastating. It's been really hard to watch. Uh, we're trying to put together some extension volunteer efforts where we would go down and try and help. But if anybody listening would like to contribute to the relief effort, the folks down there, they keep saying they have enough bottles of water and things like that. There are some uh, monetary ways that you can contribute. The state of Kentucky actually has a page, the Kentucky government, that helps to funnel your money in the right direction. So if you go to Kentucky.gov, you may see the Eastern Kentucky flood relief page, uh, and they have ways that you can donate there. And if you have the ability to do so, if it's in your budget that you can, we would really appreciate it. It's something that would would help out a lot of people that are on hard times right now. Didn't you just have in the spring tornadoes or something come through and that was same yeah. thing happened? That was last fall, or uh, I should say, like winter spring. If you look in the in the news of Kentucky, yeah, last year around Christmas time, there was a big tornado that went through Western Kentucky. That actually took out our other research center that's out in Western Kentucky. It got tore down basically to nothing. I think they said there was one lab still standing. There were lots of deaths out there. People were trapped in a, I think it was a candle factory. Their yeah. boss wouldn't let them leave. And uh, they ended up being killed in the building because capitalism, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So it's been a hard, hard year for Kentucky. We've had a lot of extreme weather events, not some things that we're used to. Jody, how's it going? Going over in your neck of the woods. Yeah, sorry for the the somber tone to to spin it over to you. Whenever you hear about devastating news in other places, you always reach out to those people who live there. And so we've talked about that here. Let's see. Well, spotted lanternfly. There were two nymphs that were spotted in Iowa at the end of July. So that Uh was, I guess, yeah, big news as entomologists. Uh, The experts with the Iowa Department of Ag believe that it was just, uh, they were hitchhikers from landscape material, but they did go out and search and they are looking for, you know, eggs or the bugs and they didn't find anything, but. What what part of Iowa is this? Dallas County. It's close to uh, Des Moines. So it's about 130 miles from, you know, the Nebraska border. So I've put out some, I guess, pokes to our invasive species people about what we can we can do and how we can learn from other states that have experienced this. And I think the closest one to Iowa was actually the Indiana finding, yep. which you were involved in. So so that's big news in the entomology land. So keep an eye out for those. That is big um, news. It's also yeah. kind of weird because uh, that would be a big Western jump for sure. I actually was talking about, I was talking with some master gardeners yesterday and this came up, this Iowa find, and they wanted to know about if it was related to the Kansas 4-H'er find last year, but I, we doesn't seem like we know enough about either of those events to to say. It is reassuring that we do seem to keep catching these things early. You know, yeah. you think about something like Emerald Ash Borer, where it was in Michigan for 10 years before we found it. It seems like every time spotted landfly pops up somewhere, we're getting it within a year, even like within days or weeks of them arriving. So, I mean, that's promising, at least, yes, even if absolutely. we are spreading it around, we seem to be catching it. It's good to know that people are on the lookout. And that's probably the price the spotted lanternfly pays for being such a flashy dresser. 
<laughs> not right. a wood boring insect that can hide. Right. Right. So, but yeah, and it just shows like how they can hitchhike these great distances. I mean, we're the ones moving them around. So hopefully we're also the ones uh, catching them before they start establishing. But in terms of other Nebraska-ish things, do you guys know what potpourri is? Yeah. Like the, the smelly stuff? So whenever I think of like, like a mix of like crazy, weird off the wall stuff, I always just think of potpourri. Sure. Like, I think that's a good word. Okay. So if anyone doesn't know what potpourri is, it's like a stinky mixture of dried plant material, right? Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to smell good. It's supposed to be a pleasant thing, but like, oh. yeah, you get like a bag of potpourri and it's dried flowers and a, usually a cinnamon stick is in there. Maybe some other like dried cranberries or something, okay. things that produce so, odors. Was that like a, even a, a topic or category on Jeopardy? Like it would just be like potpourri and it was just random questions. Maybe that's yeah. why I think of that. So anyway, that's what this summer has been for me. So it's been like a bunch of things that don't go together. Some of them quite <laughs> terrible questions, you know, scabs, Japanese beetles, blister beaters, squash bugs, leeches in Nebraska lakes, bats, ants, <laughs> ants, termites, sounds. Can you identify this sound from South Carolina? No. Ground beetles, root weevils, brown recluse spiders, powder post beetles. But the good thing is, is that bat tick invasion that I've had with a with a client since December, I finally helped her and she got to move out of that apartment. So she had a bat problem that they wouldn't take care of? Correct. But the... Property management didn't believe where they were bats. They said they were like birds. They didn't believe they were ticks. They said, if they were ticks, it's your fault. And they said, ticks don't live in houses. So, I mean, this is huge awareness of some of the urban problems that you may have that have to do with wildlife. It took months and months. I called like a health inspector in and I talked to pest control companies for them. It was a nightmare for her. Well, that's good that it got taken care of eventually. In, in a way. Yeah. You need to get an entomologist involved to say, yes, this is what it is. And yes, these can bite people. What about you, Mike? Oh gosh. I don't even know. I guess. Uh, so I've got three students now, which feels weird. Like who said that that could be a thing when the undergrad that I'm advising has this project where he was out pitfalling for purse web spiders down in a state park. We found a new species based on DNA. Uh, and we need more specimens because we only have one of them. And he got some spiders and we were going to like track them with transmitters. And we got three males and we were going to put these three trainer transmitters that we had on them and let the spiders go. And they hopefully find female webs because we don't have the females of these things. And we glued the transmitters on and everything looked great. They could move around, even though the transmitters were like three quarters of the size of their bodies. They like were still active and looking good. And we let him go. Within 24 hours, they all died. We think now that maybe the glue was toxic. So, yeah, not great. Uh, I mean, it's still a result, right? Like, he can say in his capstone, like, we should probably test different glues on big spiders, like wolf spiders, to see if they can live with it or if it kills them. And, like, it's a good, like, here's how you do science. Like, it doesn't always work. Right. Like, you expect, and it's the unexpected things that could be interesting and screw it up. So it's a yeah, good no, lesson for him. Frankly, I think you've got a paper there. Like you could, you could get a bunch of different glues. You could get some different spiders. You could be like, this is, this is sort of a battery test. If you don't feel bad about killing spiders, at least. Sure. No. And that's what we should have done beforehand. I just didn't expect it to like kill them so quickly. So 
my students doing their own research and getting getting that done this summer, I think has been my biggest reward, I guess. It's been interesting and fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed helping them with it. Kind of sounds like there's been lots of highs and lows for us this summer. It's been hot, unbearable at times, dry, I think, for all of us. We've all had some extreme weather, extreme bad luck in some cases uh, with research and topics and everything. So we don't want to bemoan or anything. We're not. This podcast isn't necessarily just a, a way for us to process our feelings. But John, I just want to complain. I mean, sometimes that's, that's not what true. that's what the heart needs, right? <laughs> uh, it all actually kind of leads into our our major theme for today's episode. We're going to be talking about the recent listing of the monarch butterfly on the IUCN's red list. They're also having a tough time. They would probably like a forum to complain in. Uh, if they could get on a podcast, I bet they would uh, have some some grievances they would like to air. But we wanted to try and kind of parse through the news about this and talk about why it's important and what it really means. A lot of people have maybe heard that the monarch butterfly is listed as endangered now. And this headline is really troubling news for anybody that loves these insects, uh, specifically people that try and plant things for the monarch butterfly that really hold this species in particular in high regard. Uh, I think a lot of people had this notion that it meant that the federal government of the United States was listing these as endangered, that there were going to be some changes that may happen. But we really wanted to note that that's not quite the full story here. It's not as simple as the quick headlines may make you uh, believe uh, this idea that the, the monarch butterfly is listed as endangered. It's hopeful that those kinds of press releases and these news articles that you've seen, they set off some alarm bells so that you are aware of the, the trials and tribulations that monarchs are under, but they're not really on the endangered species list. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those distinctions here in a, in a few, but uh, they were added to what's called the red list. This is a list that's put together by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. This is an international group. Uh, they're headquartered in Switzerland. They work with the UN on conservation issues. Uh, you can read about them on Wikipedia if you would like. They're, they're a group that's out to try and help nature. They want to help increase the conservation of all these different animals that are under threat from human perturbations. And they added the migratory monarch to their list. And this is important. It notifies the world that the monarchs are under threat that they are two steps away from extinction, I think is one of the things that's been put in several headlines. And that's good and important. And it's great news to hear that people are interested in this and that they want to do something. But they weren't added to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services list of endangered species, which is what would have actually resulted in some legal changes here in the United States. Jody, would you agree that this is still impactful, even if it doesn't have legal teeth? I think it's really important just to draw attention to something that everyone can recognize and love. You know, when we talk about people, I guess in general, like who, oh, I hate all, I hate bugs. Uh, nobody hates the monarch butterfly. And if we do the things that we can do to save the butterfly, we're essentially saving so many other positive, beneficial, like they may not be the best pollinator, but we will be able to save, you know, bees and other pollinators if we save the monarchs because of all the actions that people can do. And also because their population fluctuates all the time, 
there is hope. Like we can do what we can do to save the monarch population. So I think any attention to an invertebrate is, is good. I agree with that. Yeah. It's kind of a Trojan monarch butterfly that we can use to sneak in (laughs) conservation of all these other things. Yeah. We are not happy that the insect is on the list, but we're appreciative of the spotlight that it brings to our favorite invertebrates. Uh, The other thing to point out with this news, and this might be some hair splitting uh, that we'll talk about, but this announcement, if you go through and read the IUCN's website about monarchs, you may, if you just type in monarch, you will find that they don't have the monarch listed. They have very specifically listed the migratory populations of the monarch butterfly here in the United States as the one on the red list. And they call this uh, Danaeus plexippus plexippus, this subspecies. I am a little confused by this, and I would like to turn to our resident taxonomist for some uh, clarification on this, if he could help me understand this. You need to put like a finger knuckle cracking sound in here. Okay. (laughs) uh, As I get on. Honestly, so I've been diving into this as best as I can, like knowing how to go through the scientific literature about this kind of stuff. And I'm still confused. So is in maybe somebody that knows more about that is like a monarch taxonomy specialist will come on here and correct me. Um, But as far as I can tell, historically, there were a number of different subspecies for monarch butterflies. More recently, we have uh, whittled that down to just two. Uh, Danaeus plexippus plexippus, which is the subspecies that we have here in the United States and Canada. Um, It's the subspecies that migrates from here to Mexico. I know on the West Coast from, you know, Oregon and Washington down into California. Uh, And then Danaeus plexippus megalippi, which is a non-migratory subspecies. It's found in uh, Mexico, the Caribbean, the Bahamas, and parts of Northern South America. Uh, There's a sister species that looks just like the monarchs here, Danaeus oripus as well. Um, You might see that name pop up sometimes looking at this. So that's a South American species. It was treated as a subspecies of monarchs of Danaeus plexippus up until maybe 10 or 20 years ago because they look extremely similar. Uh, Morphologically, they're they're very much the same, but they can hybridize. And it turns out that uh, if you look at the DNA, that the two lineages split around 2 million years ago. So they are two distinct species. That's all I'll say about Danaeus oripus. You know, if you go into older literature, you might see that name uh, as a subspecies of monarchs. The reason that the that the IUCN lists the migratory population of monarchs is even if we just look at Danaeus plexippus plexippus, the one that we've got here, most of them migrate, but not all of them do. So there are non-migratory forms that live in in Florida and parts of the southeast. And then if you look worldwide, uh, because the IUCN will take in to consideration the worldwide status of a species. Monarchs historically were restricted to North and South America, but in recent times, in the last 150 to 200 years, have spread uh, much further. I mean, it makes sense for a species that is migratory that can go long distances. When we started moving certain milkweed species that they can utilize as host plants around as ornamentals, they found those milkweeds. And so now there are resident populations in Hawaii that are non-migratory that derive from these migratory forms. Um, they're also found in Micronesia and Australia 
in New Zealand, and also in the Azores and Spain and Portugal. And so if you look worldwide, all of those populations outside of North America are combined smaller than what we've got here. But because there are these widespread populations that are apparently stable, feeding on introduced potentially invasive milkweed, where they're found like worldwide, monarchs are secure and not in danger because they're spread in many places where they're not going to be endangered. So even saying Danaeus plexippus plexippus is endangered doesn't work because like that's the subspecies that went everywhere. And the non-migratory forms in Florida are probably going to be stable regardless of what happens to the migratory form. So so the reason that they're saying it's the migratory population is it's not even that that population is its own subspecies. That's just a certain portion of this one subspecies. That helps a lot, actually. But they do this really cool thing, and we like that really cool thing that they do. And so we're going to split hairs and say this population is endangered, Um, which is weird because most of the time you see like this species or this subspecies, it's rare that you see like this population right here is endangered and we're going to try to save that thing. But we want to save them because they fly great distances. Yeah. Kind of kind of out of the norm is what you're saying. Yes. But that's that's what it is. And I, I, I think I've got all of that right. The other really cool thing that I found, one of the reason that there's there's so few subspecies is that there's no kind of genetic substructuring to it. Like the eastern and western populations are genetically the same. Um, there's just very little structuring geographically. If you look at the DNA, it looks like monarchs in North America probably arrived here from South America sometime around 300,000 years ago. And so it's just not a lot of time. They have not been here a long time in geologic terms. Um, and it's just not a lot of time for like genetic structuring to, to arise. Right. For speciation and changes to occur. Yeah. Interesting. So yes, we are very specific we want to save the migratory ones i think that's very helpful what mike just went through to help me understand a little bit of what the iucn is trying to parse out there because i wrote an article about this for one of our local blogs the kentucky pest news and when i was reading through i was like why do they keep saying there's a subspecies this subspecies and then i couldn't really find a backup information on that until I started looking at more of their literature and yeah, so it just makes more sense now what we're talking about with what Mike has said. So thank you, Mike, for doing that research with that. I think it, maybe it's important that we kind of bring to the table some of the basics about monarchs, uh, just some helpful information. It's a charismatic species. Uh, Lots of people love them, but lots of people want some help uh, knowing how to identify them both as an adult and as a larva and better understanding this kind of need for milkweed and the migratory portion of their life. Jody, you've done some programming on this before? Sure. Yeah? <laughs> I guess to start off, monarchs are are insects. And so they've got all the insect parts, the three body parts, three pairs of legs, exoskeleton. And a monarch is a butterfly. It's in the order Lepidoptera that includes other butterflies and moths. And so they go through complete metamorphosis, which include egg, larvae, which is their caterpillar stage, their pupil stage, which is also known as a chrysalis, and then adult. So whenever you you know read things, people may say like they go through a larva and then they turn into a caterpillar. Larva is the caterpillar. So they look very different from the adult and immature. They've got different form, different function, but it's the same insect. A lot of times, because I talk about 
like landscape pest management, especially people don't like having their plants eaten, but they want to see butterflies and it's the same insect. So they do rely heavily on host plants to develop as uh, the larvae has to develop. And then also the adults have to feed. So plant more. If you want to know if you're looking at a monarch. So because they've got these stages, talk briefly about what each stage looks like. So the eggs are laid singly on the host plant, which is milkweed. They're whitish. So, you know, cream color, whatever. They're more oval than round. And if you can magnify or look really closely, they've got ridges that go from the top down. They can be like on the flower, under the leaf. So, you know, you look carefully if you've seen a butterfly there. You can go and check to see if there's eggs. The caterpillars are really cool. Sometimes they get confused with uh, swallowtail caterpillars, but they're black, yellow, and white. And they've got these black filaments, a pair in the front and a pair in the back. Sometimes you have to do a double take, which is the butt, which is the head. (laughs) It's very cute. It's a common problem I have. (laughs) Well, you know, kids sometimes are, they always think, hornworms or unicorns, right. but then you have to tell them the horn is on the butt and that's right. so fun. But so they're rear end unicorns. Yes. So um, the mature caterpillars can be up to two inches long. And some of the tiny, tiny ones that you will see, like hardly see the stripes, but the monarch caterpillar will go through various instars or larval stages. So they grow as caterpillars. They will, after they eat and eat and eat, they will turn it into a chrysalis. So that's pupation. And these, these pupa are so beautiful. They're like little jade pots that are so smooth and they have gold flecks and this gold band around the top. Gorgeous. Got a little stem at the top. It's usually hanging from something either a plant or a part of a building, a fence line, they will travel a really great distance to do this pupation somewhere that it's safe. So they leave the host plant. So if you're looking for your pupa, you have to move away from that plant. So people get worried, but it's just, they are. I wanted, I just wanted to chime in and say, I, they're, I think they're one of the prettiest things in Lepidoptera, like that chrysalis in particular. It's just, it's so eye-catching and it looks like a piece of jewelry. Uh, yeah, gorgeous is yeah. the right word. If you go back, I would say nine days later, that beautiful green and gold pot will just be black because it's probably ready to emerge. And so when it emerges, this butterfly is rather large. So much larger than painted ladies or red admiral butterflies or any of those skippers. It's this brilliant, bright orange butterfly that's got black wing veins and on the edge of the wings there is white spots so it's just really showy and really pretty they're large and you can see them you can see them feeding nectaring with their straw-like mouth part because like skippers they fly erratically and kind of crazy especially trying to take pictures of certain butterflies they they fly around they'll circle around you whereas Monarch butterflies are very, I would say, like majestic and slower moving. Yeah, as you said, they're quite charismatic and easy to recognize. Sometimes they're mistaken for a viceroy, which is a little bit smaller. But if you're looking at the viceroy butterfly, um, it's got a black band or stripe, I guess, on the hind wing, which the the monarch butterfly doesn't have. So anyway, I hope I described that correctly. Described it beautifully. 
I'm, I'm very pleased that you brought up the Viceroy as well, because that's the state butterfly of Kentucky. Uh, I've never gotten the full story on why we chose that, uh, but it is the state butterfly. I'm hopeful that it wasn't a case of mimicry confusing us, but uh, it is the one that we have listed. I think the state ag insect is the honeybee, but yeah, we got both of them. Do you see a lot of Viceroy then there? I I have seen Viceroy's here, but I wouldn't say that they're particularly preponderate uh, over other species. So I don't know. I'm not sure what, what the scoop is there. Maybe a Kentuckian can come at me on Twitter or something and inform me. But as you pointed out, they're they're big on milkweed. That's what they want to feed on. That's their host plant. Uh, maybe, Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about that interaction there? Why milkweed? What is milkweed? How can people find milkweed? Yeah, I really like milkweed, John. So I'm really excited to talk about this. And, and thanks for setting me up with that. Milkweeds are in the genus Asclepius. In the United States, we've got 73 species of native milkweeds here, uh, 30 of which are utilized by monarchs. Um, and the genus as a whole is native to North and South America and also Africa. So it's got this really cool distribution of, you know, temperate here, but going into the tropics and then jumping across the ocean. They, in general, are perennial plants. You know, they'll grow for more than a year. They spread via rhizomes under the ground. So you can start with one plant and then they will spread out from there, much like the carnivorous plants that we talked about a couple episodes ago. And I've seen that even in my own house. So in the, my vegetable garden, we had one single milkweed that established itself three years ago. And I was like, oh, look, a milkweed. And now I've got like a 10 by 10 patch of milkweed in my garden that I intercrop with. It has been spreading all by itself. Uh, and it's actually a real a kind of a problem. Common milkweed, especially, is, you know, people will plant it as an ornamental, but it is really good at spreading via rhizomes and will take over your little flower garden patch if you're not careful with it. Um, and, and milkweeds are actually potentially invasive species as well. So, you know, I mentioned that monarchs are found in Australia on introduced milkweeds there. Uh, those milkweeds are invasive. And so you can think of monarchs as a biocontrol agent for this invasive plant in Australia. Most milkweeds will require open areas. They're kind of field and edge plants, especially common milkweed here in the eastern United States. It's a, you know, a, an old field, open area, uh, roadside ditch plant, um, which is it like I don't say that derogatorily, like it, it <laughs> just like those kind of disturbed open habitats. And, you know, we bulldozed fields to put roads in and uh, we created a lot of that habitat. We did. But um, I'd like to say, I think a new insult just dropped. Uh, you call somebody a ditch weed. <laughs> ditch weed. Um, not to be confused with marijuana. Um, right. And I did see one thing, and I'm curious, I haven't had a lot of time to think about this, but I'm curious to roll it around a little bit. Post-European settlement, we came in and deforested everything, which created a lot more milkweed habitat. And I haven't seen anybody talking about maybe the pre-European dynamics of milkweeds and monarchs. Like Native Americans certainly deforested areas for cropland and whatnot and had a, a big impact on native environments. But I would be really curious, like if, if milkweed populations blew up post-European settlement because we came down and cut everything down, like, I wonder if like what we're seeing with monarch populations now is like a recent thing, at least the really, really big populations. If there's just more milkweeds because we've cut down everything and there's milkweed everywhere. So I wonder if what we're seeing is like a more recent phenomena 
like maybe historically monarch populations weren't quite so big and it wasn't quite so dramatic that I'd be curious to dig into it more. Some other really cool things about milkweed. Some other really cool things about milkweeds is that historically they've been cultivated for their bast fibers. So this is the soft inner bark fiber that you strip away from the cortex. It can be used in the same way that linen is used. And milkweed actually has bast fiber yields on par with hemp and of the quality of linen. So these other commercially viable crops that we grow for fibers, milkweed is up there. We just don't grow it for that reason. Again, this got me thinking like, we have all this hemp going in for fiber production and linen is still, you know, a thing that is produced. I wonder if we could, if there's a market for commercial milkweed bast fiber, like if we just start growing it commercially and like maybe don't spray it and let the monarchs eat it. If there's some way that we could increase milkweed production because we're harvesting it. That would be cool. It was harvested at various points in history, right? Uh, I, I seem to remember some things about World War II, it being used to stuff life jackets, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there are commercial uses for it. We just don't do any of those things right now on a commercial scale. And I wonder if there's a a market, a niche, like a a way to leverage that, like somebody with more business skills than me needs to come in and figure out a way to pitch that. We could talk to some crop diversification centers uh, about a a new specialty crop called milkweed. Yeah. I guess the last kind of fun facts that I learned about milkweed, um, getting ready for this too, they've got a really weird flower morphology. Weird enough that it is one of the most derived flower morphologies of any flowering plant. We've got these weird slits in the flowers that like insects have to put their feet into to pull pollen out by accident. And it's sticky, so some small insects will go in there and just get trapped and die. But it also means that milkweeds are pollinated typically by large bees and wasps. More than 50% of their pollination comes from large bees and wasps. Uh, Monarchs are actually really poor pollinators of milkweed, despite the fact that they feed on it and uh, nectar at it. And honeybees are the most, quote unquote, efficient pollinators. They are really good at getting lots of pollen from a single plant. But the problem is that milkweeds require outcrossing. And so honeybees are actually really bad because they typically will visit one plant and leave. They don't actually cross pollen between multiple plants. And so they're not really good pollinators. But bumblebees, which are less quote unquote efficient pollinators because they collect less pollen, are actually better at pollinating them because they will visit multiple flowers on multiple plants. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. I've seen so many bees stuck to the milkweed and I'm like, milkweed, why you gotta be so mean? Cause they're stuck. I've actually, I'm like, I'll put my coffee down and save them. They are, the pollen is stuck to their legs and they're stuck to the flower. Like sometimes they're like hanging off the flower, oh, wow. stuck to it. And then I'll see other bees like leaf cutter bees, like just trying to get it off their feet. And I'm like that good move milkweed. That's really cool. Um, Have you guys ever seen that? No, I've never seen it like that. Oh, yeah. I do get a lot of like great golden diggers and stuff coming at it, like big wasps. Um, They really seem to like milkweed. It sounds like they're kind of wannabe carnivorous plants. I wonder, but it's with the flowers. So like you don't want to kill the insects because you do want pollination to happen. And then the last thing, and this is kind of what a lot of people will know about, is that milkweeds are called such because they have a milky latex sap. And that sap has cardiac glycosides in it. And that is what gives, they're toxic. And so lots of things can't eat eat milkweed. It's toxic to us and other mammals, but 
monarch butterfly caterpillars can eat it and they sequester those cardiac glycosides in their cuticle in the wings. And that is what makes them distasteful to predators. Do birds eat them or are they so distasteful that they don't? Does it just deter them? Do you know? Young birds, I think, will eat like try one, maybe two, and then spit them out and not eat anything else. That's why the mimicry rings work with monarchs and viceroys. Like you sacrifice a couple because, yes, like a bird has to eat one to learn that it's distasteful, but then they learn pretty quickly. Um, Other things, generalist insect predators will eat them, no problem. So things Mm -hmm. like mantises and wheel bugs and spiders don't seem to have any problem with the cardiac glycosides. Um, I think it's mostly a vertebrate issue. Mm-hmm. We did talk about the, the monarchs and mantises once upon a time in our mantis episode. We did. Go back and check that out if you haven't listened to it. But we're not going to eat any monarchs on this show, right, Jody? I have not eaten any monarchs. <laughs> I have licked my hand after holding a lady beetle, but I would not go so far as to eat a monarch. How'd that go? Poorly. After reflex bleeding? Yes, exactly. Well, you got to know, right? I mean, that's gross. Um, <laughs> I do not need your judgments. <laughs> I did it for science. We uh, learned something new about you today. It's true. Uh, we can make the arthropod taste uh, scale. It would be like a response to the Justin Schmidt sting index. <laughs> so we've kind of alluded to they're not great pollinators, not necessarily even for their own host plant, but they are extremely charismatic. They're beautiful they serve as something of a of an ambassador, I think. Jody, can you talk to the people about maybe some of the reasons why the general public really likes these bugs? I think they mean different things to people, but I think overall it's it's a positive thing, and I think it, there's a lot of cultural awareness. So I know that because they migrate to places in Mexico, they have a celebration for like the Day of the Dead and. The locals there believe that it's their souls of their ancestors coming back. So that is really meaningful to them. I mean, many of us have raised them at at home and shown our children. I'm sure our parents showed us what that was like and introduced us to this harmless, fun thing out in the garden, things that we would see. Definitely, they would be missed. I mean, all these months of not having any butterflies here because of drought or other reasons. I received dozens of calls, like, where are all the butterflies? So I know they would, they would be missed different, you know, ecologists and people wanting the monarch butterfly to be the uh, national symbol or national insect. There are at least seven states that have the monarch butterfly as their state insect. People want to see them. They want to appreciate them. They want to protect them. Uh, Their scientific name. Danaeus plexippus means sleep transformation. So the way they migrate is completely, it's amazing. It is amazing that an insect that's got a four inch wingspan that weighs less than a gram can travel this distance. I get lost going to my friend's house down the street. (laughs) How do they know how to do this? How do they know when to do this? There's so many amazing things about this butterfly that just can't be denied. And it's definitely ambassador for so many different things, whether it's that or even just like motivational speak. Like if this butterfly can do it with this brain and this body, like we can do it too. (laughs) Be the monarch, believe in yourself. It was funny. You were mentioning that my daughter has really gotten into this show called the wild Kratts recently on PBS kids. 
<laughs> big thumbs, big thumbs up from Jody Green. Uh, the Wildcrats are really cool people. Uh, the Crap Brothers, uh, really big proponents of conservation, obviously. But recently they put one, we just watch them for free on the PBS app. They put one out that was about the monarch and they build like a little butterfly machine and they fly with the monarch and they talk about all these trials that the monarch goes through. But this is one of their big selling points as well as like, this is so inspirational. This bug, how do they know how to do this? Like, how do they fly from Canada on the way down? I was kind of curious about that aspect of it. I only know of this from my American perspective, but Jody, is the monarch a big deal in Canada as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It bonds our countries, right? Like right. we all see it. Well, you know, we talked about fireflies and some people never get to see them. And I think that's why it's such um it's such a big deal to everyone because we can all relate. You know, there's so many things like, oh, we don't have that here. Oh, we we don't have that here yet. Ignore, ignore. We all have that. We've all seen it. We all think it's beautiful and we can all do something. Yeah. I love that sentiment. And I like the, I guess I've always thought of it. It does unite North America. Like if there was ever a North American union or something, the monarch should be the symbol for it because it traverses all three of these major nations, right? It, yeah. It I mean, that's where the migration's going. It's going up to Southern Canada, the Maritimes and Southern Ontario where, where I'm from. So like we see the monarchs and knowing that that monarch has to go back down to Mexico, like it's uniting everything. I thought you were going to make like a NAFTA joke or something in there. I mean, I could have. I thought, I, I won't lie. I thought about it. I thought about saying it should be the logo for NAFTA, but I also know that NAFTA is not necessarily super popular. So maybe keep the monarch out of NAFTA. But if we ever unite as like a mega continent country thing, that should be our flag. And in terms of this decline, there's been lots of questions. It sounds like for Jody and for myself, I just dealt with one right before I got on the the phone call with you guys actually about what's going on. I'm really worried about this. This was from an extension assistant up in Northern Kentucky. And they just wanted to know, I've, they said they've only seen two monarchs this summer. They have a whole monarch garden there. They haven't seen any eggs, any caterpillars yet in 2022. People want to know why is this happening? What is what has propelled this insect onto the IUCN uh, red list? In our research, uh, Jody was preparing the outline for today. She called it the death by a thousand cuts, which I actually think is a, a really poignant way of putting this. Where did, did you come up with that, or did you read it somewhere? No, I didn't come up with that. Whenever I hear certain things, I like put it in quotes, and I'm like, oh, okay, like yeah, this is how it is. I think you know when we talked about army worm last year it's like there's got to be a perfect storm yep. there's got to be a lot of things that come together to make this so dramatic yeah and that's i think the big story here is everybody kind of whenever something like this happens we want the answer to be very simple i think that there's one major problem and if we get rid of that problem then this thing that we want to save will come back and it's hardly if ever that simple uh, there's lots of things that have kind of intertwined together to create this monarch decline. It can start with simply habitat destruction in terms of where they overwinter. It's a very specific type of forest in Mexico, a fir forest north of Mexico City. There has been some clear cutting there. So the forest has shrunk somewhat. Uh, there are effects of climate change on the forest and wildfires as well that threaten that very specific overwintering habitat. Uh, some people focus on that. I think it is uh, very fair to focus on agriculture and land use here in the United States, particularly in what we could describe as the Corn Belt. 
a lot of the central United States from Nebraska over to here in Kentucky, where we use a lot of the land for producing corn or soybeans. Uh, there can be milkweed kind of on the perimeter of those habitats, but in the last 20 years or so, with the advent of GMO technology, there has been a lot of glyphosate that's gone out into the landscape, which has caused reductions in milkweed because they are not glyphosate resistant, whereas the corn could be glyphosate resistant if you bought that. And so there is uh, land use effects that have caused reductions in milkweed. People have complained about pesticide use in, in a broad sense. I was just mentioning one herbicide, but our sprays that we put out to protect plants in ornamental settings, plants that we have uh, growing for agriculture, these will be treated with various insecticides. And you could see impacts from those uh, if they drift over onto milkweed plants. There's the impacts of invasive species. There was a really cool paper that came out of University of Kentucky, Adam Baker, and Dan Potter's research showed that the European paper wasp, an invasive species that's kind of displacing a lot of our native paper wasps, they will set up camp near monarch conservation areas. And they just go through and kill and eat a ton of these monarch caterpillars. They're like the black death for these things. They come through and just sweep them out, basically. And it's hard to overstate the impact of big things like climate change. When it gets hot and dry like it's been this year, that's not good for monarchs. Uh, it's bad for milkweed. It makes them a, a poorer host, so they can't support as many caterpillars and feed them as well. The hot and dry conditions are also just not good for the monarchs themselves. There's all these perturbations to the weather and climate patterns that they're used to, which can give them this kind of start and stop feeling to their migration coming back up into the United States to hit up to Canada. Uh, so they can get delayed and then try to go and then they get knocked back, back down again. There's all these things that have intertwined together. People want to ban glyphosate. People want to do X, Y, or Z, but really it's got to be kind of a holistic approach. I would argue you've got to We've got to confront a lot of things that we do as a species, and that's never a lot of fun. Uh, it's never very simple either. But uh, we have seen some really strong data come out about this. For example, the breeding grounds for the monarch have shrunk between 22 and 72% in the last decade. The Western migratory population in California, it's decre decreased in population uh, by 99.9% .9 between 1980 and 2021. The eastern population is larger, but it is also shrunk by about 84% from 1996 to 2014. Since 1990, there's been an 85 to 95% decline. Uh, this is some data from Michigan State. And there's been about 67 million hectares of monarch habitat lost in the last 20 years. There's always debate about these things. There's people that argue that we've seen a rebound in some of these populations, particularly in the eastern one and that maybe all of our conservation efforts are working. Other people say that more needs to be done to get more milkweed in states like Iowa and, and Nebraska and Minnesota. There's a really strong group at Iowa State that focuses on monarchs in these ag settings that they have in Iowa. There's just a lot of information out there. It can be hard to parse through. We were trying to compile it here today to help listeners think about monarchs and think about what's going on with them. It just seems like a, a huge topic for entomologists. It's something we've been researching, we're very passionate about as a group. And it seems like we have pretty conclusive data that bad things are happening. Negative things have happened to the population. We know we have hard numbers that demonstrate that. And I think it kind of begs the question, 
if they're on the IUCN red list, why aren't they listed as endangered in the United States? Just looking up Endangered Species Act, and that's established by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's who's in charge of that decision. In 2020, the monarch butterflies, they qualify for that designation. However, they didn't end up being listed. And I saw a lot of articles saying like, they're waiting for this decision. They're waiting for this decision. Then when it came down to it, it didn't happen. There has been evidence of the steep decline. They wanted to put them on the ESA, the Endangered Species Act. But during the Trump administration, they rolled back those protections for the endangered and threatened species. So it delayed that action indefinitely. So we in the U.S. don't have any policy for that, unfortunately. But that's why it makes the the international designation, that red list, important. Like it doesn't have any ramifications for us, but it just spreads so much awareness that this is happening. Yeah, it forces people to think about this. It might even put the Fish and Wildlife Service on a quicker path, perhaps, to listing this as endangered. I think it still faces a pretty uphill climb because that becomes regulatory then, and it becomes a statute and and a law, and there's legal precedents for what can happen. Like if you go out and shoot a spotted owl, a great spotted owl, or a bald eagle, there are things that could happen to you. And what are we going to do? The monarch is tough. Like, what are you going to do to somebody that hits it with their truck? What are you going to do to a farmer that that puts in glyphosate-resistant crops. What what are the laws that we're going to take here? So this article was published in January 2021. It's Wildlife Management Institute, but the headline was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Finds Endangered Species Act Listing for Monarch Butterfly Warranted but Precluded. On December 15, 2020, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service found that adding the monarch butterfly to the list of threatened and endangered species is warranted but precluded by work on higher priority listing actions. So these guys are in trouble, but there's others that are more in trouble and we need to focus on this, which is ultimately like a silly argument. Just do all of it because we know they're all in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like there's sometimes an anti, anti-insect bias when it comes to the the endangered species list. I know there are insects on it. I'm not saying that they don't care about insects. I would point out that if you look at the Fish and Wildlife Services website, let's talk about percentages per capita here. Uh, They have 95 insects listed, which includes the American bearing beetle, which we heard about conservation efforts for that in episode 86 of Arthropod, if you want to learn more about that situation. But 95 total insects on the endangered species list. Compare that to 80 mammals 50 reptiles, 141 fishes, and 106 birds. I know the 95 is higher than two of those, but percentage-wise, seems like we're still pretty low on the bugs. There's got to be more than that that are impacted, right? So they don't have enough resources to complete the listing process because the agency must first focus on higher priority listing rules. Warranted but precluded findings require subsequent review each year until the agency undertakes a proposal or makes a not warranted finding. And monarchs are weird among insects in that we have the data. Like for most insects, the reason most of them aren't listed is they're data deficient. We just don't have the information. I'm reminded of uh, a Twitter back and forth that included Alex Wild and some other entomologists arguing with this guy that pointed out, you know, something like only 80 insects have ever been declared extinct. And, you know, that's not bad. But a lot of these things haven't been declared extinct because we don't have the data. You know, Alex Wild pointed out, like, there's these ant species that have been collected in these very restricted habitats. And 
those habitats are destroyed and nobody's recollected the ant species, like almost guaranteed that they are extinct. But it takes a lot of data to show that and nobody's working on these things. Hardly anybody can identify them anyhow. So like, yeah, monarchs are weird because we have the data and we're still not doing anything, which is, I think, a terrible oversight when, you know, there are other insects that are endangered almost certainly or extinct already. We just don't have the information so we can't act. Um, but here we do, and we're still sitting on our hands. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Very frustrating to know it, to see it, to be able to prove it, and then to still have, not necessarily a shrug, but to have people say, well, we can't take that next step quite yet. It really is, I think, something like, how would you, so you have an ant species that's gone extinct because we built uh, whatever on this land that they used to live on. It's hard to convince people that that matters as well, I think. The, the monarch is easy, but a rare and threatened ant species, all these other bugs that could be under threat. I think this is what we're talking about when we can say the monarch becomes this ambassador for insect conservation. Say like, we're going to take these steps to protect it. They're also going to help break the mold a little bit for endangered species so we can get insects some recognition. In Nebraska, the Salt Creek tiger beetle, it's a very small ecosystem in place where this can survive, this beetle. With monarchs, like there's just so many issues, right? I mean, if it's migrating, it needs habitat, it needs food, it needs host plants in all of these stages along its its way. So it, we have to work together at the same time because you can do the research on where they're gonna, where the butterfly is gonna lay eggs, and what milkweeds the caterpillars are gonna feed on. But ultimately, they have to complete that life cycle. They have to become adults and, and migrate and go to their overwintering site and then return the next year. So some sometimes with those measurements, like it depends how they're measuring. If they're counting in a certain area, how do you know that all of those are moving upward in the spring? How do you know they're all coming back? What number survives? There's a lot of citizen science projects out there or community science projects that have to do with monarch butterflies and counting. And so like the more people out there counting, the more data you're going to get. But it's really hard to decipher that as well, because the population fluctuates so much. Some years are going to be not very high and other years they could do a, a rebound. But if there are many years in a row that have like cold, wet winters in, in Mexico, then there could be a lot of die off, which would really um, decrease the whole population. For so, sure. You kind of mentioned a couple of different things that people can get involved with these monarch counts, the citizen science efforts. What are some other things that just your average everyday person can do to try and change the fate of the monarch? Plant milkweed that is native to your location. So yeah. there is a lot of milkweed, like Mike described, but the milkweed that we grow in our zones may not be the same, but there are places you can get seeds that are very specific to your eco region that will grow there, that will be a healthy food source. Think about the whole life cycle and think about the whole season. So these, these monarch butterflies that are coming through in the late summer, fall to go to, to Mexico, they need a lot of food, like abundance of food. So they need to stop all these places along the way from Canada to Mexico and fuel. So they need blooms for all seasons. Monarch way stations, if anyone is really into doing what maybe Mike did in his garden and have 
a big, like a, a monarch way station. So it promotes the establishments of these small plots that are safe and monarch centric. And we've had people since this announcement of the endangered monarchs call and want to know how to plant for monarchs. So that is really positive that they're looking for that. But if you've got like roadside ditches or community gardens or parks, if, if you're responsible and have any say in these plots of little bits of land that you can plant milkweed, we can make little, what are they called? Like seed. They get milkweed seeds and put them into mud balls and you throw them while you're biking seed, or running. Seed bombs, right? Okay. Educate others about um, monarchs and what they can do. I think it's it's pretty encouraging that it's something that an individual can do. can get pretty controversial when it comes to um, dealing with farmers and why they wouldn't want to plant milkweed. I mean, it's, it's a weed. They don't like that there. It can reduce their crop yield. And you talked about being, you know, toxic to, to mammals. There are some milkweeds that you wouldn't want in your pasture land. So you want to look into that. Sorry, I did a lot of talking. No, that's perfect. Absolutely. All those things are important. (laughs) I think we can also get a little maybe political on Maine and say, get a hold of your local representatives, talk to your senator, uh, talk to the people that run your state government as well, not just the federal level. Talk to your local county commissioners and city councilors and say, you want these actions taken in your local community to try and conserve the monarch. The more pressure we put on elected officials to prioritize this, the more they have to take it seriously. Uh, and it can start at the at the city level and then at the county level and the state level because that's where it's going to have to happen. Like those are the areas that the plants are going to have to get put in. Uh, that's where people are going to have to change hearts and minds and get people on board with this idea that we need to plant something that's essentially a toxic weed uh, to save an insect that's so beloved. You can talk to the, the, the federal government about it and they can make mandates and changes there as well. But you really also need to think locally. I think that often gets forgot about when we make these kind of calls to action. Talk to your county commissioners. They're, they're people that can change things locally as well. And they may feel the exact same way that you do. Uh, and they they live in the community with you. So if you say you love monarchs, you get a group of people together that love monarchs. They got to see you at the grocery store. And there's going to be more pressure and, and and maybe some more results from that kind of action than calling Mitch McConnell in my case and trying to tell him what to do. Yeah. And, and we can put all this in the show notes, like where you can go to learn more, because there is a lot of information where you can go to get milkweed, find. And also there's really great research about how you can actually design your garden to be better for monarchs. There's absolutely dimensions and ways to plant it. Uh, some cool research that came out of UK as well. Adam Baker showed how to, how to put milkweed along the edge of your garden to get more results. Um, there's definitely some some tips and design to it, I think, that can be helpful. Uh, and then ways to try and keep the paper wasps away so they don't eat all of your, your caterpillar cattle that you're trying to grow. We hope that we've kind of helped parse through all this and present the situation fairly and accurately. No aspersions are trying to be cast here. Uh, we don't want anybody to feel bad necessarily, but we do want people to take action. As Jody said, it's not a hopeless situation. It is a dire situation, but that doesn't mean that we need to be complacent and fall into inaction and doom and gloom. It means it's time to do something about it. Uh, We can all plant things. We can all apply pressure to our government and try and help the monarch out. It needs our help 
uh, it's in this situation because of all of us. And so let's do something about it. Let's save this, this continental insect that is so beautiful and wonderful. Is that fair? A good, good bow to put on it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I do want to mention raising monarchs is fun. It's an educational thing to do. It's great to educate others about the life cycle, all things monarch, but it's not a conservation practice. So bringing all the monarch caterpillars inside and feeding them and all that stuff. Like, you know, when we say go out and do something, go out and plant more. And what Jonathan said, don't bring all the butterflies in. I would like to point out that it's actually not only not conservation, that's actually very bad. Monarchs raised indoors lose the ability to figure out which way is north and south and so lose the ability to migrate. So all of those butterflies that you're rearing inside will just die. Except, you know, bring a couple in for your kids to teach them about it. But like large numbers is is a bad idea. Yeah. And any time you have a lot, like a high density of anything in a small area, there's potential for like parasites and share the beauty of monarchs. Yes, absolutely. We hope that everybody will go to our show notes and check out all those links. Jody's put together a really great list of resources to find milkweed, to find more information from the Xerces Society and others about this situation. And we hope you take some action. This is your call to arms here from Arthropod. Uh, Go forth and, and help the monarch. We appreciate you listening to the show today. If you want to find us, you can find us at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We're on all your favorite podcatcher apps, Podcast Addicts, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We are arthro-pod on all of those platforms. Don't forget the dash. If you like the show, you can always leave us a rating and review. It helps other people find the show and it makes us happy. It brightens our day to read those. Uh, you can also contact us through Twitter. Uh, we are arthro underscore pod show. I'm also Bugman John on that platform. I'm at Jody Bugsby, UNL. And I'm at mscavarla 36 Thanks for tuning in. Catch us in a couple more weeks for more entomology entertainment. And go out there and get to work saving the monarch. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod Gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.